Hello and welcome to Celluloid Junkies and Another Year. I'm Luke Kane and I am here with Damien Heath. Hello. And our returning special guest host, Cassandra Kane. Hello. If you're listening to this, it means you survived Christmas, you survived the crowds, the family reunion, the idiot drivers, the carols, all the other pleasures of the holiday season, and we're happy to have you with us. How was your Christmas, guys? Uh, it was good. I saw both of you. So You did? Yeah. So we, we all pretty much know how one another's Christmas was. <laughs> Cass, have yes. you enjoyed yourself? I did enjoy myself. I saw both of you as well. So, you know, it went well. Successful. And it's been a bit of a mad dash to uh, get this episode together with Cass over from Sydney for the holidays. Mm. Uh, a Star is Born obviously has uh, several incarnations as well. So there's a lot of research uh, that goes into a movie like this. And I forgot my keys to get into our studio. <laughs> yes. But let's move right along. Mm. So, as Damien said, we're kicking off uh, 2018 with one of the most sensational films of the 70s. We're looking at Frank Pearson's 1976 romantic musical drama, A Star is Born. Barbara Streisand. Chris Christopherson. A Star is Born. I don't want to do this to you anymore. Well, then fight for me. Because if you keep walking, I hate you. With one more look at you, and I hate you forever. I love you, Esther. One more look at you. Are you watching me now? Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson. Watch closely now. A star is born. Production history of the 1976 version of A Star Is Born was long and stormy. It would pass through many hands before going into production, and once it did, things only got worse. Barbara Streisand first met hairdresser John Peters when she was about to start filming a new comedy for Pete's sake, and wanted to update her look with a sporty new wig that Peters would design. She was a half hour late for their appointment, and when she finally arrived, Peters said, in no uncertain terms, don't ever do that to me again. He also told her she had a great ass. It was this unafraid, impudent streak in Peters that first intrigued Streisand, a major box office star who was rarely chastised by anyone, igniting a relationship that would last seven years. Barbara would later describe her time with Peters as gritty, raw, ferocious, and animalistic. 
It was also the main inspiration for the star-crossed lovers we see in the film. Peters immediately felt at liberty to exert his influence not only over Streisand's personal life, but her career as well. He felt Streisand had fallen behind the times, singing old standards and appearing largely in outdated musicals and period films. He reimagined her as a child of the 70s, in form-hugging jeans belting out contemporary pop tunes. She allowed him to produce her next album, Butterfly, which featured songs from artists like Bob Marley and David Bowie. The album received negative reception and underperformed commercially. Streisand would later admit in a 1991 Larry King interview that it was her least favourite of her own records. Around this time, screenwriting couple Joan Didion and John Dunn, who'd made it big with their adaptation of the 1971 film A Panic in Needle Park, were in talks with Warner Brothers about their screenplay Rainbow Road, a modernised take on George Cukor's 1954 classic A Star Is Born, which itself was a remake of the 1937 RKO original. After touring with rock groups Jethro Tull and Uriah Heep, the pair spent six months writing the script, converting the story's setting from Hollywood to the contemporary rock scene. Two years later, the production was scrambling to pin down its lead stars. Everyone from Carly Simon and James Taylor to Diana Ross and Alan Price had passed on the project. Sue Mengers sent the property to her client Barbara Streisand, who'd previously turned it down. But when Peters read it, he saw its potential. He felt this project was the chance to continue his rebranding of the Streisand image, revealing her softer, sexier side. He had no idea it had already been made twice before, and came to it with a purity, as Streisand would say, that opened her eyes to its possibilities. At different times, Streisand lobbied for Peters to act as producer, director, rewriter, and or star of the movie. This rattled the brass at Warner Brothers, who knew that the hairdresser couldn't sing, had never acted, directed, or produced a film before. They were at the same time terrified of saying no to Streisand, who was the biggest female box office drawer in Hollywood at that time. Meanwhile, the screenplay underwent third and fourth drafts to cater it to Streisand's specifications. Ultimately, Warner Brothers talked Peters down to a producer credit, with Streisand to act as executive producer. She also insisted that the film be distributed by Warner Brothers but produced by First Artists, her own production company. The deal with First Artists was that Streisand would make three films for $6 million, A Star Is Born being the first. Anything over that budget would come out of her own pocket. On the upside, she would have final cut and 25% of the gross. Frank Pearson was brought in to direct after Peter Brogdonovich, Mark Rydell and Jerry Schatzberg either walked away or were pushed out of the project. For her male co-star, several big names in rock were considered, including Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan and Marlon Brando. Barbara and John met with Elvis in Las Vegas to discuss his suitability for the role. But by 1976, Elvis was overweight, lethargic and unfocused. He was John Norman Howard, in his final reel, Peters later said, and his manager, the Colonel, didn't want him to take the part anyway. They ultimately settled on Chris Christopherson, who signed up in September 1975. Robert Surtees of The Graduate fame was hired a cinematographer to give the film its documentary-like visual quality. Several songwriters were brought in to compose new music for the film. Barbara begrudgingly filed down the nails on her left hand to take guitar lessons for a year, for a scene that would ultimately be cut. It did, however, lead to her writing the song Evergreen, which would become the film's central love theme and a number one hit. The battles between Pearson, Streisand, Peters and Christofferson began with principal photography on the 2nd of February 1976, one month later than agreed upon, in LA and Arizona, with a 60-day shooting schedule. 
Almost everyone involved described the atmosphere on set as tense and troubled. Pearson had to contend with Streisand, who wanted to direct the film, Christofferson, who was battling addiction, set pieces that involved huge crowds, one close to 60,000, and John Peters, a first-time producer with an explosive temper. One fight between all four of them was captured on mics and overheard by visiting members of the press. Pearson had six weeks to assemble the film and his rough cut was screened for the studio before Streisand took over per the terms in her contract. She hired two editors to work day and night over five months, helping her reshape the film to more closely resemble her vision of it. Despite all of the infighting and messiness that overshadowed its making and the mixed negative reviews from critics that followed its release on December 18, 1976, A Star Is Born was a giant hit. The third highest grossing movie of the year at $80 million against its $6 million budget, it was nominated for four Academy Awards with Streisand winning Best Song for Evergreen. The film's soundtrack rocketed to number one on the Billboard 200 chart and remained there for six weeks. It legitimised John Peters as a major Hollywood producer and was Streisand's highest grossing film up to that point. Looking back at it today, the movie stands as a flawed but fascinating snapshot of American attitudes and aesthetics in the mid-70s. It also remains one of the most beloved Streisand vehicles amongst her fans. So, uh, Damien, what did you think of A Star Is Born overall? The first time I saw A Star Is Born, I thought it was decent, and it's kind of grown on me since then, as I've come to enjoy the music in it more. There's a few things in it that I don't love. Um, They are mainly to do with Streisand's performance in the later parts of the movie, but I think it's a really, really good movie, really fun movie. It's my favourite Streisand movie, and it's a kind of got up to that point you know despite such gems as for pete's sake (laughs) Cass, what about you what are your thoughts i think it's funny because i almost feel opposite to that so you used to love it when we were kids watching it together like just thought it was really fun loved the music loved barbara didn't really like chris christopherson that much and i feel like in my watching it for this podcast i saw the flaws much more prominently and I much preferred Chris Christopherson in this film to Barbara aside her singing obviously that her music is amazing in it like watching her perform and everything but I just felt like his performance was much more interesting to me than hers and generally I disliked the film more now than I used to. No I totally agree with you I felt like my heart and head were at opposites while I was watching it this time my heart loves the film there are so many great moments in the film but there are so many really big problems particularly with pacing and the lovers montage oh isn't it horrible awful lovers montage yes. I just hated it I was <laughs> like oh my god how did they get this in the final cut and they build that house they do it on their own. Let's build a house. It's so ridiculous. I think when that point of the film came on, I actually wrote in my notes, this movie is ridiculous. Which is where the blatant ad for her album comes from as well. The su- in the Superman In the shit. Superman outfit, yeah. <gasps> That's right. Yeah, which was an album she released uh, the next year, I believe. But if you look at this film, it is 50 minutes before they kiss. Mm-hmm. Then from there, it's 30 minutes. And within the next 30 minutes, she's famous, they're married. Yeah. 
They're in love. They're married. Yeah. And and that's a common uh, kind of critical negative for this movie is that all of that happens far too quickly. To me, for me, it doesn't really happen that much quicker than in the original versions. And and there is something to be said for whether they go back and start at a point where the male character is, uh, I, I guess, at least level with his amount of fame instead of on the on the downfall. It's already a long enough story. It's already a long enough movie. There's already so many things to cover in there that you can only put so much in this movie, unless it's going to be like a three-part Hobbit-style trilogy or Lord of the Rings-style trilogy. I don't think you can tell all of the stories that need to be told to get to know the characters any better. And Cass, I really think what you said is true. Chris Christopherson, in terms of building a character, he is leagues above Barbara. Barbara sort of just feels like, I don't know where this person came from. That was something that I really noticed this time. It's very hard for me to be objective because, as you both know, I have loved Barbara since I was 10 years old. She is my person. Mm. And so I never even really cared about if it was a character or not. I wanted it to be Barbara. Mm. But looking at it now, Esther just seems inconceivable. Mm. She's just sitting there in this nightclub with this giant voice. By the way, I just have to quickly say I hate that her band is called The Oreos. The Oreos. <laughs> How could it be more insensitive? Oh, for people who haven't seen this movie, her band is two black women and Barbara in the middle, <laughs> hence called The Oreos. So I guess what, they, even, they make up The Oreo? Even in the... She's the cream. The Oreos. Even, <laughs> even the contemporary reviews called call that out. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's, it's not a modern thing to be, you know, kind of... Object, object to that. I think because the film is so, like, you know, liberal, loose, yeah, we're all cool, we don't give a shit. That's the whole mood. So I think it was in a way them going, you know, we're so not racist that we can be racist. Or there was some weird thinking behind it, but it just is so tasteless and horrible. And every time he says that in the film, I'm just like, ugh. But on your point about Barbara, I feel like she doesn't have an arc. Like, she is who she is from the beginning and she is who she is at the end. I'm obviously grief-stricken by the end yeah. of the film, but... She certainly has less of a progression than the female characters in the originals who are naive and, you know, introverted. They have to be brought out of their shell. Barbara, you know, she has no problem sticking a microphone in Chris Christopherson's face in that first scene. That, that kind of... Mm emasculates him to an extent. And says, you're blowing my act. This is not a woman who has a confidence problem. So, I mean, you're right. There is no evolution for her personally. And everything that John does doesn't affect her in any material sense. But he is totally vulnerable to everything she does. Mm. It's one of those films that while you're with it, it's called lovely, it's Mm. nice, there's music, there's big concerts, you're loving it. But then you step back and you're like, what was that? Mm. Um, But, I mean, look, I think it's a film that has great moments. Does have great moments. Don't know what happened. It's all a crazy game. Damien, you saw the two originals. Cass and I got halfway through <laughs> the Judy Garland version. We were going to finish it. We're we enjoying it. it. Yes, we just ran out of time. It is long. It's almost three hours with the restoration. We got to that part where Judy Garland is watching her own movie and it's that long musical sequence where she's like, I'll tell you about my past. And we were both like, oh, this we've had a, enough. This is Born in a Trunk, 
which is, I, I believe that's the song that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the big musical piece in that film. The born, born in a Trunk medley. It reminded me of Singing in the Rain, like yeah. when he's like knocking on the agent's doors and... It was painful. Yeah. It's actually really good. No, we we really liking the movie, but that moment was just painful and long. And like, oh, come Too on. Too drawn out. So 1976 is kind of a culmination of these previous two ones. 1937 is set wholly in the world of Hollywood. 1954 is set wholly in the world of Hollywood, but it's a musical. 1976 is a musical set in the world of rock and roll. So it's this gradual progression through each of those three versions of the movie from Hollywood to... I guess from the Academy Awards to the Grammys. Mm. Um, The earlier versions are a lot more melodramatic, obviously, especially Wellman's, William Wellman's from 1937. And Judy Garland stars in this big glossy musical that's saturated with colour. And Streisand's version of the film is clearly influenced by the five to ten years in American cinema that came before her movie. So is her character. Features more documentary style and washed out colours, a relaxed wardrobe and set design and far less rehearsed performances. And I really like that at the end of the movie, um, even though this will come up in one of the reviews later on, but Streisand's final performance of One More Look at You and Watch Closely Now, it pretty closely echoes her final performance from Funny Girl of My Man. And it's in framing and narrative and in emotional intensity as well. So I really like that they have I'm not sure if that was a conscious decision in the filming to echo that, but it has done this 10 years after uh, Funny Girl came out. And I find that really makes that scene at the end of this movie a lot more powerful. One thing that I really like about this version is that it's a musical, but all of the musical numbers are actually happening for a reason. It's not just a character suddenly thinking out his music. So you have music all through the film, but it's always actually legitimately there it's not meant to be taken as an abstraction the way you do sound of music or other films like that and it's interesting that last performance she cut it two ways she cut it with like a frenzied edit where she had like five different camera angles and it was like and then she tried the still and everyone agreed that the still shot was better and so she ultimately went with that and that was a lip-synced performance no all of these that's another thing about this film they were all sung live there because she's a terrible lip syncer and she didn't want to do it that way. So, mm. yeah, they recorded all of them live and that's what's in the film. I have to say one of the strongest elements of the film are the concerts. You really feel the concerts. 45,000 for that other show. They set up this real rock show that they sold tickets for and Streisand and Christopherson, I believe, did performances on that show but it was uh, it also had Peter Frampton and some other Santana yeah some other huge acts at the time 45,000 and they apparently the entire crowd hated the scenes of uh, movies and they just wanted to enjoy a rock concert which is fair enough (laughs) because it's a lot of waiting around and like you know logistically that whole motorcycle scene would have been a nightmare it was boiling hot they'd all paid three dollars fifty to get in which back then would have been you know not expensive but it's something This film uh, started under the name Rainbow Road. Yeah. So was it not explicitly a remake of A Star Is Born at that point? Joan Didion and John Dunn had never seen either versions when they started writing it. But at some point, it became a a remake of A Star Is Born. Well, that was Streisand's influence. She said, look, if we're going to do it 
uh, and it is essentially a remake. You need to see these films, and we need to be aware of the history. And we need to integrate that into the, this. And script. they they must have integrated quite a bit of it because there's a lot of uh, parallels in the story between all of the versions and, and this one. So I'm assuming that a lot of it was added in subsequent um, drafts of the scripts. In all of the versions of the movie, the male initially pursues the female, but in the end his self-destruction isn't enough to dissuade her from her marriage. She remains wholly committed to him. And in all three films, he realises that she's better off without him, and in each film he decides to end his life. But this is far more subjective in this 1976 version of the movie, uh, where the car crash could plausibly be an accident. And in the first two films, the lead actor perishes by drowning himself in the ocean. But moving the setting away from Hollywood, as we have done in this one, would have made that ending a little bit more difficult in this version, being away from the ocean. And I didn't get the feeling in this one that he his self-destruction was about saving her. I, I got that from what I've read about the first two, but I felt like this one was a more personal, more sort of... I, I agree with you, yeah. I've always thought that as well, that he makes a bit of a personal decision. Yeah, because yeah. she was fine. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, she absolutely loved him <laughs> and it was absolutely a love story. But there is... She was definitely fine. I mean, she found his dead body and she was still fine. <laughs> she could go on stage and belt out a ballad. Um, in, in each of the versions of the movie, there's this strong agent or publicist character. Uh, and in the earlier two versions, it's really funny because I guess there's, there's not so many grey areas. Okay, we'll get to this. No, that was just so funny, Cass. <laughs> she was fine. She actually was. That's the problem. Anyway, yeah, go on. Okay. So in the first two versions of this movie, there's a strong agent or publicist character. And it's really amusing to watch the way that this character develops from one film to the next. Because in those earlier two versions, there's less less uh, kind of grey tones. It's all black and white. So there's this point in each of those movies where he admits that he hates the actor, the alcoholic actor, and they get into a fight in a bar. And yet the... Uh, the character, the agent in the 1976 version, it shows this far more subtle, realistic breakdown of this working partnership where they're actually kind of amicable towards one another. Um, So uh, those supporting roles have really been enhanced so much in this version. Uh, Everybody's got, uh, I guess, far more dimension to them. Mm. All three films make the reference to One More Look, which ultimately becomes the final song or one of the final songs in this 1976 version in the 1954 and the 1976 versions of the film i'm sure you saw this scene in the 1954 one where they use the microphone so we've already talked about barbara sticking the microphone in chris christopherson's face and that picks up uh what he's making some childish he's like childishly coveting his bottle of jack daniels and that's what that's what it overhears so in the 1954 version and it's during a musical number and James Mason and Judy Garland are sitting on the stairs and a microphone drops down, but you can't hear what they say until they listen to the song back. Did you watch this scene? I don't think we got to that. Right. And he proposes to her and she says no. And everybody who's on set is listening to this. It's a really good comedic scene in the movie. And then because everybody's listening to it and she says, well, how can I turn down a proposal like that? And they agree to get married. But that's a really good um, sequence in that 1954 remake. What are the with one look references in the other version? So where John Norman Howard in this one says that he just wants one more look at Barbara yeah. at the end. So it's very similar to that. It's just they, they make a reference to oh, just having taken one more look at you. Um, and that's where that song with one more look at you comes from. 
One of my favourite scenes in this film is that first love scene where they write Lost Inside of You together. Mm-hmm. And I love that scene because we need we need a reason why Esther is interested in John. And when she's like just playing the piano and those lyrics just come to him and they're so beautiful and you see her look up at him and you can see that she's falling in love with his talent. And one of the problems with the film and it was cited by a few reviewers was we never see John dynamic, amazing on stage. Yeah. You know, the very first time he's on stage, he flubs his lines, he's still yeah. blow and he's just a dickhead. We're already you know? seeing him at his worst at the beginning of the film. Yeah. And the second time he's on stage, he's just looking at Barbara. He doesn't even engage with the crowd. Which I found so odd that yeah. he's just sitting there ter- craning his head away from the audience, singing to her, trying to impress her. And she's so unimpressed and just, you know, recoils from him mm. snorting drugs and hates the whole chaos of everything around her. But that scene, that love scene is really, really beautiful. And I love that after they finish writing that song, there's this prolonged moment where he's kissing her hands and stroking her face and it's just got that piano playing over it. I think that that's one of the scenes that really works, really strongly works. Jesus, that's pretty. What is it? Oh, just a little piece I wrote. Keep hoping it'll be a sonata when it grows up. Make a hell of a song. I can't imagine that. It goes so hot, nobody could ever sing it. Play it, play it again. Just like you've done it before. Real sweet. Okay. With them little leg rows or whatever. <laughs> Our patients. Okay. <laughs> John Norman Howard. The thing I find so interesting about his character is that his success seems to be totally predicated on his self-destruction. You know, there's that scene where Esther's talking to his road manager and she says to him, I'm not bad for him. Mm. And he says, well, he's not working. Yeah. And that's both, they're both true. He's better. He's not drinking. He's not doing drugs, but he's not working. The minute that he starts drinking and starts doing drugs, he starts working. And I remember that when I was in my early 20s and I had like a bit of a pot problem, I got to a point where I was afraid to go to my computer and write unless I was stoned because I thought that nothing great would occur to me. And so those two behaviors became conflated. And what I see with John is this feeling like I can't do what I love unless I'm also killing myself. And that idea that just kind of, it doesn't get in the film much because mostly it's Esther. But if there was... The film would be really successful if it if it explored that more, and I think that that's one of the most interesting hidden things in the film, is that he's he's only working when he's dying, and he's healthy, but he's not working, and because he's not working, he's not totally fulfilled. I think that's really interesting. And so many um, rock stars of the seventies had that trajectory. Mm. Yeah. And I feel like there was a, like, obviously there were themes around 
his own self-identity and what was his contribution to the world and what was his purpose and he was obviously struggling with all of those things and I was just trying to think about why he's just so over the top in terms of aggression and like it's not subtle self-destructive behavior it is like Mm. overt really full on and I wondered if it was some kind of like show of strength or masculinity or something that he was... Like he's got something to prove? Yeah, like the only way that he could be, I don't know, interesting or, you know, worth anything was if he did something that showed a real feat of strength or control or, like, you know, male aggression. Yeah, I'm not... I don't know. It might have been something to do with the fact that it was in the 70s and Vietnam War had happened and men were coming back from the war very deflated and, you know, without a sense of their place in the world and I just wondered if it kind of had any kind of link with that. That is a common tone throughout all of the movies. They all are Mm. a little bit over the top in their self-destruction. And one thing about his interest in Esther is that you get a sense that he's clinging to her as as like a lifeline Mm. because if he lets go of her, he knows where he's headed. She's the only chance he's got of derailing himself from this, this track that he's on. Uh, so we understand why he's really invested in her. Why she's invested in him is a little is a little tougher. The best change between the original two films and this remake is that in both the original and in Garland's remake, at the end of the movie, the star goes up to a microphone and introduces herself as Mrs. Norman Maine. And in this movie, Barbara is introduced before her final appearance as Esther Hoffman Howard. You've got to say it correctly. Go on, Cass. Esther Hoffman Howard. <laughs> okay, so it's a like a, a hyphenated combination of her and him rather than her identity being assumed by him. So uh, I think that's one of the better changes. But still the strong woman, it's a hyphenation. It's not a completely taking of his name. That's right. yeah. And his attraction to her, I feel like, must be partly because she is such a strong woman you know she's not a sort of vulnerable I'll do whatever you say like she knows who she is and like when he says to her that was the old you and she says you're not going to trash my life you know that part like he clearly that is what hooks him for her is that she is almost a man do you know what I mean and that's a really schmaltzy moment but I love that scene where he's like it it may what does he say um you what I liked about it was that you sounded like you knew who you were yeah I wrote that down because I just thought, and then it just c- closes up on her face and she smiles, you know, that it makes her happy that he's happy for her that in such a generous way. I really love that moment. Mm-hmm. Who cried? I cried. I didn't cry. Oh, I cried. And do you know what always gets me is that... He's cold. He's cold? Oh, no, you're talking about the ending when he dies. Oh, <laughs> Damien is cold. No, I think that when she says what? he's cold when he's dead. Oh, Sorry, no, that's when I cried. That I, Hang on. Where did that come from? Because you didn't cry. Oh, right. Oh, you're cold <laughs> Oh, he's cold. He's <laughs> just cold. Well, you meant I was physically cold right now. Sorry, no, you go. Forget the scene I where I start crying is the scene where they're last seen together. When he says, just look at me. And then their last words to each other, they don't say them. They mouth, I love you. And something about the fact that they don't say it, they mouth it, it just feels so real. And, you know, it would have just felt like a really tired old trap if these both characters went, I love you. I love you too, you know. But they don't do that. They get around it by just having the characters just go, I love that. Um, And I just think it's great that the film 
just lingers on that sensitive goodbye long enough for you to know before it happens that it's the last time they'll see each other. It does that really well. Uh, And yeah, I loved that. So just one other thing I I really didn't like, and I spoke to Cass about this, was the spray paint Mm. on the wall. And he leaves it there. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind that he does it because he's kind of that kind of character that's just very destructive and wasteful. But I really mind that Esther is flattered by it and looks pleased that he's done it. Well, she even... No, she's not just flattered. She says, aren't you going to cross the T? And then she, and then she, like, as they're leaving the room, she looks back at it, like, really, like, oh, wow, it's the nicest thing anyone's ever done I for do. me. I do have to say, though, the fact that he wrote it backwards like that, that takes a lot of skill. That was very, I was, yeah, I was impressed by that. Yeah. On the audio commentary, Barbara said that she taught Chris Christopherson to write backwards. Oh, for fuck's sake, Barbara. Oh, Barbara, what didn't you do in this? <laughs> <laughs> well, she didn't cry when her husband died. Do you know that she sent, when she sent out her movie to all the theatres, she sent a little note to the projectionist saying, Real 11 and 12 need to be up at this volume. And in this scene, could you make sure you do this? Take care of my baby, love Barbara. Barbara could never have lived with herself if she hadn't stepped in to manage the making of Star is Born either, even though her takeover did involve going out on the kind of limb she used to be very wary about. For a lot of years, you know, I was very shy about taking that responsibility. I mean, I would have ideas for things, but I wouldn't presume to really put them on onto a director, you know? Um, and I was frightened, too, that maybe my ideas weren't good enough. I mean, I knew what... I thought I knew what I was doing, but I thought, no, no, I could never do that, too, you know? I was really insecure about it. And just as I've gotten older and had more feelings about the kinds of film I would, I would like to be in, the kind of films I would like to be in, um... And what I thought about multiple conversations and moments of truth from actors, you know, as well as my, for myself, trying to create an atmosphere where we could create something. And I just knew about the subject matter. It's a very personal experience, you know, this business we're in, the pressures of the business, the pressures of the, the press, the public, their expectations on commerce, what it all means. And I think the artist also should take a more creative role in the filmmaking, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm also fascinated by all the technical and filmmaking, and I love lenses. Um, you know, I love lighting. I like decking sets. I like doing costumes. I like writing. I like now writing music, which I was forced to do also, you know? Lastly, just on the original versions, there was also another version of this movie, which was filmed in 1932, directed by George Cukor, who helmed the Garland Mason rendition. It was called What Price Hollywood and dealt with an aspiring actress who began a relationship with an alcoholic film director on the decline. There was an additional marriage thrown into the story, but many of the dramatic beats were the same as later versions, including the suicide of the main male star. Cukor was asked to direct the first version of A Star Is Born just four years later by David O. Selznick, but declined because the material was far too close in narrative to What Price Hollywood. Of course, Cuca would come back to the story two decades later when the chance to work with Garland and Mason arose. I couldn't believe it when I read that John Peters wanted to take out the suicide. Yes. Well, you know that the car accident was a compromise because it was going to be a much more direct, deliberate suicide, mm. but they made it. And, you know, I think I kind of like the ambiguity of the car accident. The car worked, for sure. But it's crazy that he thought that that was an inappropriate... It was an un- unimportant part of the, or, like, of the whole well, story. Said, I'll hate him. How dare he leave her? He found it really horrible because obviously 
um, the John Norman character was like a prototype for him in this bizarre... Yeah, no, it's good that he was making a movie for himself and yeah. not an audience. Well, they both were kind of like, people want to know what we're like. And that was a big yeah, thing that kind of, you know... Um, and that's why in the movie he says to her, you got a great ass," which is exactly what John Peters said to Barbara when they first met. Which just makes it quite an egocentric film. The scene that feels really unnatural to me, apart from Barbara not understanding how a um, tape recorder works, <laughs> is where um, they're trading I hate you and I love you. Mm. I hate it. I hate that scene. I've always hated that scene Lots. from the moment I saw this movie. Hyperbole, isn't it? Yes, hyperbole. <laughs> it's very OTT, yeah. But the scene before that, I think, is um, where Barbara walks in on him in bed with another woman. And her reaction there, her face there, I, I find that uh, that's a really powerful mm, yeah. shot. I think she has two great scenes of acting, that that one. And I also really love how she handles the Grammys where she's on, mm. the, on the platform. Why do you like that? I think she's doing a lot with her eyes, like just how she's feeling awkward, torn, not knowing what to do. You really get the character's conflict. That's one of my favourite scenes from all of them, actually, because uh, this one's at the Grammys, the other two are at the Academy Awards. And the female character is, you know, she's having a big moment in her life ruined here. And yet she's still supportive of her husband. Uh, But it's done in such a way that you don't feel like it's it's deferential in any way to him. It's just a a natural reaction of somebody that loves somebody else. I think it's one of the better interpersonal scenes in each of the movies. And it's good for Esther because you don't sense from her that she's annoyed that her big night's being ruined. Mm. She's only focused and concerned with the fact that he's come in and he's how he's appearing to others. You know, she wants to protect him. And then what follows that is, you know, she falls down on the escalator and then she yells at that photographer, haven't you had enough? And when that whole scene happens, you can really feel Barbara's thumbprint on that. Like, you know, her anger and upset... Because I don't think she's ever been comfortable with notoriety. And I think that she injects a lot of that into this film. You know, the, haven't you had enough? I'm sick of this. You get you get her, her hostility. Well, and she's her... never been comfortable with that, which is why there's an effect named after her. The Streisand effect? Yeah. I thought that was to do with politics. So the Streisand effect is because she lobbied Google to take off images of her house off of the internet. And because she lobbied that so much, it became... So it had so much more notoriety that so many more people went there to look at this image of her house. About six weeks before this film came out, uh, as you both know, because I sent you the article, Frank Pearson, the director, wrote a scathing, uh, I guess, essay article, which was published in US Magazine on 22nd of November, 1976, about his experiences. We We can provide a link to that. As well. Oh, yeah, we will. It's really good read. It is very interesting. Even if, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but the, the history behind the filming of the movie is enough to get interested in that article. And it's, uh, it's pretty damning. Like, it's damning on Barbara, but it's also damning on John Peters. You guys read it. What were your thoughts about it, Cass? Like, what did you, what did you take away from it? Did you think he was... Well, one thing I heard on the commentary Barbara said over and over, she never called Pearson by name. So you can still tell she's very angry because this was done like 30 years later, this audio commentary. She said the director at the time. And she only ever referred to him maybe once or twice. And she said, there's a sacredness to movie making. Things that happen within a set should stay there. She goes, I don't like this new culture of tapes being leaked out, stars being defamed or embarrassed. It's inappropriate. It's, uh, it's an emotional thing. It's an exhausting thing. You're not always your best self. 
And I think that there there's a sacredness that needs to be honoured. When I read the article, it just felt to me like somebody seeking attention or fame in a in a, just a, a way that perhaps he hadn't expected to when he was going to direct this film. So in other words, it's kind of like he almost knew that his footprint wouldn't be on the final film, perhaps in the way that he'd originally imagined or that, you know, it would come out that potentially he wasn't as influential in how it was made or that he was very deferential or, you know, whatever went on. So I almost sort of like this article was his way of becoming known for something in relation yeah. to the film outside of his artistic contribution it really felt like that it just felt like this kind of oh i've just got to get it all out and people will read this and then you know they'll be interested in me potentially yeah. I, don't know. I could imagine the things in it being real just from other things having read about barbara and knowing a bit of her reputation anyway like it didn't feel completely dissimilar from things we've read about her in terms of her controlling kind of nature and all that sort of stuff um i thought in terms of what was most interesting about it i thought the screenplay journey that the film went on I was just like I had no idea that it took so long to get to the point where it did and how many rewrites I had and everything like that mm. and then also by the end of it I was curious about well where did that final cut of the film actually come from like mm. was it Frank or was it Barbara or I found it ambiguous in terms of how it left off and I think that was deliberately so I think there was a reluctance to admit that ultimately he didn't have final mm. cut or you know, but that was that, those were the terms that they set out on. Barbara's always said he was hired, and we made an agreement that it would essentially be co-directing, but he would take the credit. Mm-hmm. I mean, Chris Christopherson said he didn't show up from day one. We read that quote the other day. I don't know how accurate it is. It's it's tricky. What did you take from it, Damien? I don't think he would have written the article if everything had gone, you know, according to plan. So I'm sure there's a, a, a quite a large element of truth to his article. Uh, but you've got to consider the source this is one person's word against one other person's word. Mm. You know, one of those things that despite so many people being present throughout this whole experience, you're never going to get the truth. It's mm. just always going to be he said, she said. Mm. Uh, I found it really interesting that Pauline Kael, who didn't love the movie, kind of defended Streisand and Peters from that article. She wrote, in November, Pearson published his apology before the fact, an article in which he wrote that the picture he turned over to Streisand and her co-producer John Peters was, according to the unanimous view of the Warners people, a huge hit. He rigged things both ways for himself. If the picture we got to see was anything less than great, it would be because Streisand and Peters had wrecked it in the final cut, while if it was great, we had him to congratulate. Pearson did not mention that he had previously directed only one movie, the 1970 spy thriller The Looking Glass War. It was a failure, largely because there was no controlling dramatic intelligence at work. It didn't involve the audience. Neither does A Star Is Born, and its faults can't all be laid to Streisand's interference or to her and Peter's editing. That's pretty much what you said, Cass. He was kind of like just trying to get something. It was his way of getting something. It's kind of sad. And we looked up um, Frank Pearson's filmography yesterday, post A Star Is Born, and we had not heard of any movie. No, they were a string of small failures. Yeah. And I thought it was funny that he did the screenplay for A Dog, Dog, Dog Day Afternoon, Afternoon, which won the Oscar, but is renowned for being all improv. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, poor Frank. <laughs> so, yeah, it seems like, um, you know, we've done a bit of a focus, uh, if you've downloaded our episodes which you obviously have to be listening to this one but all of the episodes that have started with the name of the director so you know ken russell's the devils and toby hooper's poltergeist and such so this is going to say frank pearson's a star is born 
and it feels like this is uh, the least important name credit we've put before one of these movies that we've done on the podcast. Yeah. Not only because of the, the, the movie itself and his role in it, whether however big that was, but also because of, I guess, the legacy that he left after that, which is pretty much non-existent. Yep. Okay. So, if Frank, if you're listening... He's dead. He's dead. Okay, so... Whew. I miss you already. Hey, Esther. What? What's the matter? I was just taking another look. The other thing you have to remember is that seven years before this, or eight years before this, people were telling Barbara, you're, you can't be in films. You're too ugly. You have a big nose. You're not a movie star type. Mm-hmm. You need to be on Broadway. She's now coming to A Star Is Born. She wants to direct it, but this is 1976, and women in Hollywood don't make movies, okay? She was too frightened, and John Peters have said she would have directed it, but she was too scared to, to ask, and she would have been told no. So, you know, she was in an awkward... I think she was in an awkward position from the start, but this film was really important in the Streisand evolution. If we didn't have A Star Is Born, we wouldn't have Yentl. And we wouldn't have Prince of Tides and we wouldn't have Mira Has Two Faces because this was the movie where Barbara said, I can direct, I can organise, I can take on more than just the actress role. And, you know, she left, I think her and everybody else attached finished this film exhausted and really, really dispirited. But from this came great things and a really important evolution in Streisand's character. Do you think it was painful in the years between A Star Is Born and Yentl? Because she did some pretty fluffy movies like The Main Event in that time. She did The Main Event and All Night Long. I think that was it. It was for Pete's sake pre-Star is Born. It was, yeah. But she did... And so was Funny Lady. It it feels like the, The Main Event is a step back from A Star is Born in terms of her influence. Yeah. The main event is like a one of her B comedies. I mean it's just to get repaired with just to pair up again with Ryan O'Neill. Uh, that, but also, I mean, if you look at the film, you can see the Streisand agenda in it. It's very much like got those scenes where it's, you know, the woman owning the man, um, the woman being the one to leave in the morning. So it's got a lot of those ideas in it that you can see she would have, you know. She's very desirable in it. Yeah. Like, obviously. I, look, I think it's a fun movie. I still put it on. I love to watch it. I think it's got a lot of really well-scripted moments. It was a huge hit for her. Um, her her lowest grossing film is All Night Long and she plays a supporting role in it and, you know, just kind of walked in and walked out. Everything that she's really taken a hand in is just a money spinner. And that's just one strange thing about her life is that she's just had, even like this film, which was critically savaged, was huge box office and huge money. And she got 25% of the gross. She finished A Star Is Born incredibly wealthy. You know, she would have made close to $30, $35 million on this film. It's pretty staggering. The film obviously would have been very different without the social revolution that was still going in America but had had started, I guess, in the decade before and the movements that began in American film in about 1968, which were thanks to the various European new waves. There's there's a lot of, uh, I guess, academic texts out there on Barbara Streisand's influence in Hollywood, uh, specifically 
the acceptance of women, but also the acceptance of Jews and making Jews sexy. So that's one of the things that you were talking about, Luke, that 10 years or eight years before she was told that she'd never act, she was too Jewish. Mm. So all of this stuff. But there's a lot of stuff from around the middle of the 1970s that that started to change. And A Star is Born is just one of those huge periods in, in Hollywood history where a female became far more powerful. There's a person called Zohar Altman Ravid who wrote an article for the University of Tel Aviv titled The Star as a Creation and the Star as a Creator, The Case of Barbara Streisand. And he says, movie stars' control of the production mechanism of the commercial American film industry has been gaining strength since the middle of the 70s. This fact is supported by a succession of movie stars who won the Academy Award for Best Director. Some of the prominent star directors include Robert Redford, Warren Beatty, Barbara Streisand, Kevin Costner, Clint Eastwood and Mel Gibson. They all, except Streisand, received the Best Directing Oscar Award for directing their own films. In fact, from 1980 to 1995, out of 15 Oscar awards given to the Best Directors of the Year, seven were awarded to actors. And Ravid summarises that Streisand has broken through many of the boundaries facing women in Hollywood, even despite her ability to win the Best Director Oscar in amongst so many successful male counterparts, saying Streisand is still the most radical female star in queer and feministic terms to have emerged in Hollywood since the beginning of the 70s. She has always endeavoured in her work to break through her boundaries as a woman, both in respect of her controlling the production mechanisms of her films, as well as of her narratives. The ideological subversion of her movies became more and more specific as her control of her movie production mechanism grew tighter, and she could thus reach the ideological limit zone of the industry and the audience. No other star in the past four decades had come close to that borderline. In her films, the subversive presentation of male and female identities and the power relationships between them, in the frame of heterosexual relationships, affect the emotional response of the audience directly, even if it may not always reach their levels of critical discourse and conscious awareness because of the camouflage afforded by conservative plot structures. You can definitely feel that A Star is Born is a product of that counterculture movement. And, you know, that there was... Obviously, at that time, a general loosening of the social mores that had come in in the 50s, you know, really confining, constraining mores. You know, even even though Barbara is a little kind of prudish in the film, you know, doesn't take drugs or anything, the vibe of the film is very non-judgmental about how it presents drug use, alcoholism, the mania of the crowds. Chris Christopherson is visible to the crowd while he's snorting cocaine before he goes on stage sometimes. And there's even just um, like miscellaneous shots of people in the crowd snorting blow and like, you know, and doing all kinds of things. It's really interesting in terms of how the film makes you feel like the 70s might have been. For someone who never lived in that era, you watch that film and you get a real feeling of that time. I guess Dog Day Afternoon and All the President's Men uh, are very, very powerful films that came out in the same couple of years, even Jaws, but mostly male-dominated casts in all of those movies. So, you know, this one, to an extent, Network is another one with a strong female character. So uh, there's, a f- there's a couple of movies from around then, but I don't know, this, 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 is a, this is an interesting one just because Barbara is such a star outside of... Hollywood as well. So coming into this movie, making a strong female character, who this woman who was really strong, obviously it had some negativity attached to it when the reviews came out, but the, the audience loved it. Yeah, that's right, they did. I feel like she kind of shot herself in the foot a bit. 
She wanted to make Esther strong, but she made Esther so strong that you didn't really believe that she was in this relationship. Or in that world, really, like with with Chris Christopherson's audience. Like I found that really hard to place. Like she just felt so refined and dressed so well and, you know, was articulate and perfect in yeah. how she performed. You've got these grunge rock crowds who have shown up to hear hard rock, but they're perfectly happy when, when Esther comes on the stage and sounds like a Broadway star. I get that, but then you listen to her sing and it's, it does, it blows you away. Actually, one thing that I did right was for anyone who wasn't Barbara this scene would not be convincing. No. no. Unless it's Liza. Because she's such a freak. Like, she really is a freak. Yeah. You you watch it thinking, okay, I've not seen anything like this. And so then you kind of make an allowance. But I still agree with what Cass is saying. It's um, If these people are, are snorting coke and having blow and then this amazing voice comes on, are they seriously going to be knocked into the, you know, this is awesome? Like, yeah, I, I totally get it because she is amazing, but... Yeah. yeah, I do just think, oh, it doesn't. the puzzle pieces don't quite slot like, in. It's like you go see Bruce Springsteen and you want to hear Born to Run. And then someone comes along, you've never heard them before, they're singing new material. Even if it's brilliant, you want to hear Born to Run. Mm. And until you hear Born to Run, you're not even going to acknowledge that this other person, miscellaneous person, is great. Yeah, It's a bit incredulous. So, Cass, this idea of Esther. Okay, so these are a few of the things that I noticed. Mm. She wears pantsuits. Mm-hmm. She can't cook. Mm-hmm. But she's the only girl that John's met with a last name in the last year. Mm-hmm. She was married but divorced because her husband wouldn't fight. So this immediately puts her as someone who is, you know, not only headstrong but <clears throat> can't tolerate submissiveness in her partner. Yes. Yeah. He wants to stay over that night, but she says, I'm not that kind of girl. Mm. We have to meet through mutual friends. You know, then you mm. call me in a week, then I think about it. Mm. Um, during their first love scene, she gets on top. Mm, yes. She proposes to John. They have it at City Hall rather than a church, yeah. and she objects to the term obey. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously the biggest part of it is that she not only survives his death, but is able to go out on stage and be brilliant. Do you think that she... She was... doesn't just survive his death. She thrives <laughs> when he dies. She's fine. <laughs> so... Is this a great representation of an independent woman, given that this whole gender equality issue is bigger now than it's ever been? When you watch the film, do you watch it going, yes? Or do you watch it going, ah? Well, I did watch it going, yes. Like, as in, I, yeah, I think, and then maybe I'm placing it at the time, so I'm sort of imagining it in the 70s. And I think, yeah, a lot of things she does, I think, are really favourable and inspiring and all those kinds of things. So I certainly didn't look at it as over the top. I don't know. I, I think like, I, I enjoyed those parts where she was saying, you know, in the beginning when they're having breakfast at her place, he brings the pizza and she's eating the pizza and he says, oh, we're going here. And she says, well, normally, well, you have to ask me, right? And I remember loving that part, but then feeling like it kind of got lost, like she wasn't that woman all the way through. Um, so there was that part where I thought that would have been really interesting if she actually made him realize, you know, that all these assumptions that he's making about women in a in maybe a more overt way. I felt like there was probably more opportunity to do that better. Well, she ultimately just does go to the concert and gets lost. She does, and then he leaves her behind and she's yeah he's stranded. Stranded. <laughs> and but she seems to forgive him for that pretty quickly. And which is why at the end of the day, in spite of all those um strong female behaviours, I think it really is a love story more than anything else. And it's about the sorts of things she does just for love. 
whereas for him it's not enough, but for her it is. Can a woman be in love and still be strong? Why do we always think, oh, if the woman's in love, she it somehow compromises her equal footing? And I don't think it does for her, but I just think um, it's more a focus of the film than... And because I think I think she's equally strong throughout it. Like, as we sort of say, she doesn't ever really seem to falter. I mean, other than the fact that she wants him to be on tour with her, which is clearly not a clever business decision. Yeah. And he's not going to do well. It's not actually going to help him. It's just a con- – I felt like it was just a concession that she was making to try was to keep going, him. Was he going to be performing? Yeah. yeah. And oh. he even says, I know our music doesn't belong on the same stage. Yeah. So that's one part where you sort of go, oh, she's kind of – she's compromising and that's where the love overwhelms all other – yeah. decision she might make as a you know, career just, oriented woman. was it just that um barbara had to be shown to be sympathetic to the fact that he had helped her out so she had to help him out it had to be his decision in the movie to say no i'm not going to do that because it couldn't be barbara's decision oh, i don't get that feeling at all i didn't feel it but i yeah. get the feeling that she just wants him there because she's in love with him mm. you would get that feeling though you get suckered into like what happens mm. when barbara says something this old adage of women give up more for love than men just naturally where do you stand on that do you think that's true oh i don't know if it's as cut and dry well i think obviously that 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 must be changing a little bit with stay-at-home dads and things you know the dad can't the male can't give birth to a baby so there's always going to be that kind of the 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 mother does have to give up Mm, something mm. to do that i think it's probably in equal measures in women and men i probably i don't think there's a real just depends on the personality type how they were raised nature nurture and then you know you sort of my experience is that men will do as much as women. It's just that they're not as overt about it. They're not as mm. verbal about it. Mm. <clears throat> so you get the initial veneer of, oh, that women will do more. You know, women are, are more predisposed to give up, surrender, sacrifice for a relationship. I don't think it's necessarily true. So you're you're basically saying that women give up, uh, men give up as much as women, but men don't complain about it. No, I'm saying men give up as much as women, but they are reluctant to admit it. I think that generally through history, women have been forced, have been put in a position where they have to give up more. Which is not an option. That's right. You will stay at home. You have to have the kid. You will raise it. So It's it's been forced because it's been accepted, though. And, and, And it's not necessarily that a husband in the 1960s said, you have to do that. It, that was the accepted norm. That did, there was there was no alternative. They yeah. didn't know any different than but that. That accepted norm was put there by men. It probably was, yeah. Well, it absolutely was, and so they were under the thumb of that. That it, you know, this whole I don't I hate to use the word the patriarchy, mm. <laughs> but that's essentially what it is. You know, it's like it, it was it was put upon them. But I think John Norman Howard is a character that where love wasn't enough, as she says later in the film. You know where. In spite of him finding that, and could that be fulfilling enough to give him, you know, renewed sense of purpose? It, it obviously wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It isn't, and that's why ultimately, even though <clears throat> Esther sidetracks him from his fate, which mm. is death, mm. from the very first frame that he's on, it is death. That's where mm. he's headed, and he does get sidetracked a little while, which is nice and great. But ultimately, he ends back up on that same mm. path. And I think that's because he needs his music and he needs his artistic side, but the price of that is death. For whatever reason, in his nature, it just is the price. Mm. 
It's almost like he'd been there for too long. He'd created all these habits. Just couldn't break them. One interesting thing about the film is, you know, when the waitress takes the bottle, within two seconds a fan is there giving him another drink. When he gets to wherever he's going, his road manager is there, Gary Busey, with blow for him to do. So you get the feeling that even if he were to say no, there would always be somebody there thrusting it in his face. And, you know, we all only have so much resistance. If something's there and it's easy and you've done it before and it feels great, you know, I mean, how how many times can you say no? It's like a tidal wave. Mm. And, you know, when she takes him out to the ranch house in those ridiculous scenes, that's really the only thing that helps him because he gets brought out of all of that. But the minute that you put him in there, they both know he's too weak to say no on his own. Mm. And they, they do. Ultimately, they have to face the world. It's really interesting that scene where the black cars come in. They're like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the world is like, entering our space. Yeah, it, it is. It's invading their little private paradise. Yeah. But it's, you always get the feeling that that's temporary and that that's not realistic for either of them. Soft as an easy Don, I'll kill you. I ain't never gonna die. Fresh as the morning. Promise? Yeah, promise. Even despite um, Streisand uh, becoming such a huge influence in her movies in a producer role, then as a director, also as a star, the music, everything. Uh, and, you know, we're about just under a decade removed from Streisand presenting the first female recipient of the Best Director Oscar, which was a, a like momentous occasion in Hollywood, and that was to Catherine Bigelow. And I think that part of the reason that that was momentous be- was because Streisand never got that nomination for that same award. Uh, which she probably should have at some point had that nomination. <laughs> that was a pretty special uh, moment. But there's still a dramatic underrepresentation of female characters in key roles, both on screen and off screen in Hollywood. Uh, I emailed you this report, Luke. In the report, Inequality in 700 Popular Films Examining Portrayals of Gender, Race and LGBT Status from 2007 to 2014. Did you read that? Oh, I had a brief look. I haven't had a chance. So that's from the University of Southern California School for Communication and Journalism. And key findings included the following. Across 700 films between 2007 and 2014, less than a quarter of characters 40 to 64 years of age were women. In 2014, no female actors over 45 years of age performed a lead or co-lead role, which is damning. Only three of the female actors in lead or co-lead roles were from underrepresented racial or ethnic backgrounds, and no female leads or co-leads were lesbian or bisexual characters. Across the top 100 films from 2014, only 15.8% of content creators working as directors, writers, or producers were women. So that's one in every seven. Women only accounted for 1.9% 1, 1. of directors, 11.2% of writers, and 18.9% of producers. Put differently, only two women directed across the top 100 films of 2014. 28 women have worked as directors across the 700 top films from 2007 to 2014, and only three of those were African-American. And I will put these up in PDF format on celluloidjunkies.com in the show notes. Um, They're really interesting reports. There's a couple of other ones which I haven't referenced here which go along with this and with the last one. But um, clearly the involvement of women in Hollywood works from the bottom up or maybe from the top down. 
The USC report found that films with at least one female screenwriter attached have more female characters and more women 40 to 64 years of age on screen than films without a female screenwriter attached. And uh, we discussed in our Baby Jane episode Ryan Murphy's Half Foundation. Cass, you were there on that episode as well, but that's wherein he aims to have at least half of the directors on his television shows uh, as females. And those uh, shows have included American Horror Story and Feud, Betty and Joan. And it's sad that sexism exists in such an alarming manner in Hollywood. And the recent accusations by actresses and female workers against people like Harvey Weinstein is just another indication of this. I'm not saying Streisand necessarily deserved a Best Actor nomination or win for Yentl, because that's very subjective, but for her to be the only actor or actress not nominated between 1980 and 1995 for a major, successful, creative role shows that when a man makes this leap, it's admirable, almost like a most improved award. But when a woman makes this leap, she's pushy, argumentative and controlling. And I don't remember Stanley Kubrick getting the same reactions when he called for his 100th take of a scene or James Cameron when he put his actresses through the ringer. There's a moment in Yentl where you see Barbara wearing all of her hats at once. She's in doing this really dramatic scene with um, Mandy Potemkin and she's... This is a behind the scenes, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's just yeah. like an outtake. I remember you showing me years ago, and it's stunning. It is, because she's staying in the moment, and she's reacting to him, and he's just being explosive and violent, but she's also moderating his performance as she's acting, and it's just, you watch it, and it's a bit mind-blowing. You think, wow, that's incredible. I mean, for someone who has no acting talent whatsoever, for her to be able to be real in that moment, but also be her mind operating on another level, where she's watching him and moderating him, and deciding where the shot is, and deciding the lighting, and deciding the tone, and deciding everything else. It's just... yeah. Just I mean, quickly, it sounded like you said Streisand had no acting talent, but you were talking about I'm talking about myself. Yourself. <laughs> yeah, just for someone who's like, just doesn't, you know, it, it really is like, I remember seeing that and, and thinking, wow, you, when you're watching Yentl, you don't think about it, but when you see that moment, you're like, wow, that's a, that is a talent. Mm. That is a very talented person. I was warned as a child of 13... Not to act too strong Try to look like you belong But don't push, girl Save your time and trouble Don't misbehave quickly talk about the songs. Do you guys have favourite songs from the film? Um, I'm a woman in the moon girl. <laughs> um, and, of course, love the finale with yeah. One More Look at You. Oh, yeah, I love the finale. That's my favourite. Um, but I was really taken with the performance of Evergreen this time. Never really have been before, but it's, uh, you know, the performance is fantastic. In the yeah. studio? Yeah. Yeah. That scene is really alive. And I forgot that everything was in this. Yeah, as did you, Cass. Forgot that everything was in this yeah. um, movie and it was lovely to hear that song because it's just really gentle and nice. Yeah. There's no song that comes on that I dislike except for Queen Bee. Queen Bee. Oh. Mm, zap. <laughs> <laughs> Queen Bee, baby. Blow that jump over. Left on your own. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, it's really bad. That's the one bad one, I agree. 
but the the scene where they're recording Evergreen, where she's playing with his hair, looking into his eyes, and her voice just shimmers over that whole scene. Mm. Obviously, the finale that's still shot on Barbara, she's just in top form vocally, and it's just wow. But what do we think of Chris Christopherson's singing? Because uh, when this came out and the reviews started coming out, most of them said, "Look, this performance is probably intentional." But he sounds pretty bad. I don't think he sounds great. <laughs> um, what I love about Chris Christopherson in this film is when he's acting. When he's singing, I'm just like... And the film doesn't linger on his singing very much, so it's not there enough for you to be bothered, but you're certainly not amazed by him. Mm. The film does linger on his blue eyes, which are fucking stunning. And his belly. Which is very flat. Mm. He is, I was going to say, he doesn't even have a belly. <laughs> the area where a belly would be. <laughs> the scene, which we talked about before, the melodramatic one, where she's like, I hate you. Like, I love you. But his performance in that scene is pretty amazing. And, you know, he's got those, he's got really small eyes. And when they get water in them in that scene, it's just, he's very, very vulnerable. Do you think he's got small eyes or do you think he's just got like an uh, oversized round head? I don't think about it, David. Well. I feel like his performance is very generous and very authentic. Like, for him, it is all about the character that he's portraying rather than any performance he gives. You don't think he's trying to be a star? No. It's all about the contrast to the Barbara character, I think, and him just being totally in that self-destructive. And I think him being very character-based and real Mm. really highlights how non-character-based and unreal... Yeah, it does maybe offset that a bit. I mean, what do we think of Barbara, you know, approaching his corpse? It always reminds me of my girl when she's like, he he needs his glasses. But um, I think it's actually really sad. Like, you know, when she says, Johnny, I'm scared, and you see the tear roll down her face, and especially the part where she's like, no, no. I love how she talks there. And actually, even the tape recorder scene, which is ridiculous. But then after that, when she's like, and you're a big talker. Talk, talk, talk. And then she's like, you lied, you lied. She's actually really good in that scene. It's just that the character doesn't come together cohesively. This is what I mean. The film is great in bits. I would probably pick about five or six scenes from the film and go, these are the, these are great. Everything else around it just doesn't, as a full feature-length film, it doesn't totally come together. Maybe there is an issue with their chemistry generally. like Because she's never been an understated actress. No. She's amazing, but understated is not her style. No, it's not. Um, Whereas Chris Christopherson very much is. There's nothing showy about his performance at all. And she's been better. You know, you take her in, say, The Way We Were. Mm, That's true. Or Up the Sandbox, even, you know, which is is quite understated. I mean, I know that's not a great film, but she is great in it. Hmm. Um, This film is, is Barbara playing Barbara, and... If you love Barbara, you won't care and you won't it won't bother you. But I think someone coming to it who's not obsessed as we were and are, yeah, um, you're definitely going to no- notice that, and it hurts the film ultimately. It's interesting they dated briefly in 1971. Didn't you say something like they she cursed me for movies or cured me of the movies? I don't know what he meant by that. Yeah, but. Um, ultimately, he credits A Star Is Born with getting him off tequila because Chris Christopherson was dying of addiction. And he saw himself up on that screen and I think it kind of freaked him out and it changed his life. The whole experience, even though it was terrible, ultimately probably saved him as a person, which is, you know, really good. 
Well, I thought we would just discuss uh, very briefly. Um, there's a remake on the horizon. So it seems like every 20, 25 years, the next generation gets their very own A Star Is Born. This one's been a bit longer. This was 42 years. Right. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's been floating around since 2011. I remember it being announced that Clint Eastwood was making it with Beyonce. Hmm. Which would have been pretty painful. Thank God that fell through. Apparently she got pregnant and then fell off the project. Um, it's now been made. It's been... Principal photography began, I think, in April of this year. It's essentially been finished. Um, Bradley Cooper, it's his directorial debut. He's also starring. Lady Gaga will play opposite him, and she's written original songs for the film. And she's been credited under her actual name. And, you know, the story, we all know the story, but it's set, I think, in the country music world. So Cooper's a country music star, he's on the decline, he notices Lady Gaga's character, he, she becomes famous, he, you know, yada yada. Um, so, I don't know, what do we think? Are we hopeful? Are we excited? Or are we, ugh? Bradley Cooper as director, that, I mean, I've never been a huge fan of much that Bradley Cooper's done. No. Um, I don't really care for Lady Gaga, so, you know, it can surprise me. I have no expectations for it. I guess I'm just curious as to what will be new about this film or what 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 does doing it now bring to the old tale, I guess, of yeah. their relationship and rising to fame. Will it be a social media element? I don't know. I don't know. What are they going to do? <laughs> That's kind of true because every film, I guess what's, what's new about every film is that it is a product of its time. Yeah. So what would this time bring to this story? I really don't know what it would bring. All I can think is just the ubiquitousness of... Um, famedom, I suppose, and social media. I think it's a bit unfortunate because Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, they don't seem like the kind of people who will make a movie that would interest me. I think it would be too glossy. I think it would be too staged uh, for my liking. So that's why I don't really hold too much hope for it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I guess you'd have to wait and see for those trailers to come out, which I guess should come out relatively soon. Pretty ambitious to direct for the first time and star. Yeah. I don't know if I mentioned this, it's uh, release date's October 5th, 2018. So we haven't got long to wait. Right. Hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, Esther Hoffman Howard. Uh, the Janet Gaynor Frederick March version of A Star is Born from 1937 was made on a $1.2 million budget and grossed $4.4 million. It became the first colour movie to ever receive a Best Picture nomination at the Academy Awards, losing to The Life of Emile Zola. It did, however, win for Best Original Story, which is quite fitting considering it has now been remade so many times. William Wellman, the director, Frederick March and Janet Gaynor all picked up nominations in their respective categories too. The Judy Garland, James Mason version from 1954 was a lot more expensive, costing more than $5 million and grossing just under $7 million on its initial run. It was Garland's first movie since 1950's Royal Wedding, which saw MGM suspend her contract and later release her, and depending on who you believe, there may or may not have been a subsequent suicide attempt. A Star is Born went on to receive, which is like in keeping with the garland Manelli kind of family, uh, a Star is Born went on to receive critical acclaim, including Academy Award nominations for Mason, Garland, and the song The Man That Got Away, among others. Garland was widely tipped to win the Oscar for her performance. The Academy even sent a film crew to her hospital bedside as she had recently given birth, but lost to Grace Kelly for The Country Girl. 
Streisand's A Star Is Born cost more again, coming in at about $6 million, but blowing everything else out of the water with an $80 million box office run. In fact, it was the second highest grossing theatrical release of the year after Rocky. And this new rock and roll version of the movie kept alive the tradition of Academy Award nominations, despite it being the first film not to actually feature a scene set at the Academy Awards. Nominations came for Best Cinematography, Best Sound, Best Original Score, and a win came to Streisand for Best Original Song with Evergreen. She was the first female winner of this award as composer. The award was presented to her by Neil Diamond, with whom she'd release a version of You Don't Bring Me Flowers the following year. Critical reception of the film was mixed, to say the least. Roger Ebert gave the film two and a half stars out of four, saying, The scenes showing Christofferson's fall, his drinking, the drug use on tours, the groupies, the unreality, are well handled and fairly close to the truth. But this isn't a movie about a star who dies and Miss Streisand doesn't let us forget it. It's about a star being born. Christofferson and Mazursky and the rock scene sort of fade out into the background and Miss Streisand comes on strong, the overnight sensation aiming for that bravura finale. And she sings for eight minutes, and she's great, and there are shivers down our spines, but what does it all finally have to do with this movie, this story, and these characters? Slant magazine did a review of the Blu-ray when it was released, and they hit upon the oft-cited vehicle for Streisand argument, which is obviously true, but also no different than how 95% of movies are made today. So what's the problem, really? At least this one was done well, but they disagree. They say, One would be tempted to agree with the many, including Pearson, who've dismissed A Star Is Born as a vanity project, but then one would be dismissing the occasional usefulness of vanity in the right hands. Rather, the film is equal parts I will survive and pop martyrdom, instigated by a star so enormous that she could likely bankroll the Department of Defence for the year of 1976 and still have money left over for the lovely hut Esther and John Norman build for themselves after they're married. In this version, the entertainment business does nothing but count money, peddle drugs and ignore talent, but does so without any sense of hyperbole or satirical good humour. The press, as embodied by M.G. Kelly's CD DJ, is shallow, unforgiving, ruthless and mean, while fans are merely impatient nobodies. Vincent Camby's New York Times review was equally as mixed as Ebert, stating that as long as it attends to music, it's not all bad. What Miss Streisand does is not acting. She's a queen condescending to her own court cameraman, which explains, I suspect, why even a couple of semi-nude love scenes have the effect of being anti-erotic. One suspects she, not the director, is the one who yelled cut just before the camera would have glimpsed a bare Streisand breast. She never plays to or with the other actors. She does A Star Is Born as a solo turn. Everybody else is a backup musician, which is okay when she's belting out a lyric, but it's distinctly odd when other actors come into the same frame. That Vincent Camby review is so distasteful <laughs> and misogynistic. Yeah, clearly, well, how was he watching that film? Like, Let's discuss Streisand's tit. Yeah. Pauline Kale wrote an extensive piece on the movie that can be found in her book When the Lights Go Down. And if you need any hints as to what she thinks of the movie, the review is titled Contempt for the Audience. Christofferson is actually the star who's born in this picture, and because of the physicality of his performance, the hidden weak eyes and the suggestions of depth, we're ready to feel a lot more for John Norman than the film encourages us to. When John Norman crashes his Ferrari and lies dead, the emphasis is on Esther's reaction. The weeping Streisand does a star turn, asking for something to cover him with, and the scene is so undirected she seems to want a sack to shove him into so she can get on with her grieving. When she did her virtuoso finale in her first movie, she had a great song, My Man, and her strange, disturbing face was mesmerically involved in reaching us. The song was an act of assertion that carried all before it. Here, the song dramatises the widow's restoration to life, and she sheds tears, she smiles through her tears, she has an orgasmic interlude, she gets tougher and faster. 
but the song itself is endlessly uninteresting and when at the last she flings her head up and the frame is frozen, her self-dramatization has got out of hand. It's one thing to act your songs, it's another to overact your songs. Streisand has more talent than she knows what to do with in the heart of a lion, but she's made a movie about the unassuming, unaffected person she wants us to think she is and the image is so truthless she can't play it. I love her writing. Even though I disagree, it's so much fun to listen to. She's a very clever lady. Yeah, it's a great review. And uh, Pauline Cowell's review of this film, she went into so much depth. So if you can find a PDF torrent of When the Lights Go Down, the book, uh, and it's, it, I remember it's on page 240 of that PDF, but it's well worth reading the whole thing. I remember someone said about Pauline Cowell, she can evoke a movie she hates better than someone who loved it can. Yeah. All right, Damien, you know what it's time for. It is time for a quiz. Oh, Cass and I are the contenders. So, Luke, first question for you. Now, we, we've already covered some of these things, but let's just go through them. Who was Barbara Streisand's first choice for the lead male role, a man she even visited to try and convince him to appear? Elvis Presley. Very good. Cass, which actor or actress's spouse appears in the film, and who is it? Chris Christopherson's and it's Rita Cooley. Very good! Oh my god, Cass, you're amazing! I'm screwed! Luke, what was an important audio innovation that began with the release of this film? Uh, well, that they recorded it live. No. Oh. Audio innovation, I don't know. Uh, A Star Is Born was the first film to feature rear channel audio and therefore the first film with Dolby surround sound. Really? Yes. That's amazing. Cass, give you one as easy as Luke's first question. So, other than Elvis Presley, name one of the other potential actors who were considered to act opposite Streisand. Marlon Brando. Very good. I also would have accepted Neil Diamond and Mick Jagger, because they're the names I've written down. Luke, true or false? Streisand's performance of Evergreen was overdubbed in post-production because Chris Christopherson could be heard coughing on the original recording of the track. That sounds true. False. The oh. take in the film is live and the only take done. Fuck you! <laughs> That's such a trick question. I made it sound true. Like, yeah. really good. Coughing. Cass, true or false, Barbara Streisand's wardrobe was presented entirely by Streisand herself from her own closet. True. Very good. Oh, I'm hating this. Stephen has that credit. <laughs> okay, Luke, name the other two films which featured involvement from Streisand's collaborator John Peters and his roles on both. Oh. Of her films or just general? The other two films of Streisand's, yes. That involved his collab- his input? Yes. I'm guessing the main event? Yes. And what was his role on that? <laughs> what, what was his role on A Star Is Born? He was producer. Okay, and what was his role on the main event? Producer. Very good. Okay, and the other film? You have mentioned it earlier. All night long. No, you have mentioned his... No, you have mentioned his role on this film. With Streisand. For Pete's sake, he was their hairstylist. Very good! (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. Cass, who was the main creative force behind the decision to turn John Norman Howard's death from a suicide to something more ambiguous? Guessing John Peters? Yes, it was. Well, I think I clearly won that quiz. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Luke, I will give you one more question, because I just thought of it while we were doing this. Who is the famous actor who sits down with Christofferson during Streisand's act with the Oreos? Uh, I know that actor. What's his name? Of course you know him. Why would I, of course, know him? Because he's uh, got a very, very famous character that he plays. 
I don't know. I know his face, but I don't know. Robert Englund. Oh, he's Nightmare on Elm Street. Of course Nightmare he is. Nightmare on Elm Street. Freddy. Freddy. Is he Freddy? Yes. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> well, Cass won that one. Yeah, just was... just as she did when I think we did Baby Jane and Cass won Beat Me. So She's just a winner. <laughs> you should have won the Streisand one, though. I was very embarrassing. Humiliating <laughs> for you. I did trick you with the wording on that true or false. I did make it sound a bit too believable. You did. I did believe he would call. All right, guys, so uh, uh, final final thoughts and rating out of five. Why don't you go, Damien? God, I just um and are about this rating, anywhere from four to five. I, it's definitely not a five-star movie, so I'm going to say it's, you know, four or four and a half. And I think I rated it four and a half just because I find it really enjoyable to watch. It's probably a four-star movie, though. Cass? I'm um, probably three and a half. Okay. Yeah, I really enjoy it for the music, but there were too many flaws, I think, for it to be any higher than that. Yeah. Well, look, I went four stars. I think the film's really inconsistent. It's got really bad pacing problems, but it's more than made up for by Streisand's elemental presence, as Roger Ebert put it in his review. I loved that. And Christopherson's sensitive, weighty performance. It's not always convincing. It's very schmaltzy, but it's always engaging. You're never bored, and uh, it's. I think it's worth seeing. So I'm going to go with four. That wraps up our episode on A Star Is Born. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of this film. Please send us your thoughts and comments. Uh, Hearing from you always makes our day. And if you like what we do, please rate and review us on iTunes. Your ongoing support means a lot. Next month, we're going to be profiling Lynn Ramsey's 2011 chilling psychological thriller, We Need to Talk About Kevin. One thing that Damien and I have discussed moving forward is that we really want to start profiling female filmmakers and directors. So this year we're going to try and do one film directed by a man and one film directed by a woman and kind of alternate uh, throughout the year. Until then, you have a lovely January and we'll see you on the uh, we'll see you in Feb. Like a rose under the